How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to your new X-Lapse Sunday special. Just because Major X-Lapse is, uh, well, thankfully, in the rear view, uh, doesn't mean we're done talking about something a little bit different on a Sunday. And uh, indeed, we're going to start a brand new program right now that I'm calling Phoenix Resurrexlapsed, wherein we're going to spend the next five weeks talking about Phoenix Resurrection, the return of Jean Grey, which ran from the very tail end of 2017 into uh, about a month of 2018. I think it was a weekly series. I could be mistaken, though. It might have been bi-weekly, but I know it didn't run too long into 2018 is kind of the point I'm getting at here. So let's get right on into it. Today we're going to discuss Phoenix Resurrection, the return of Jean Grey number one, cover dated February 2018. The story is called Chapter One, Frustrate the Sun. Written by Matthew Rosenberg, with pencils by Lionel Francis Yu. Inks by Jerry Allen Gillen. Colors by uh, Rachel Rosenberg. Letters VCs Travis Lanham. Edits. Whew, Christina Harrington, Chris Robertson, Darren Shan, Mark Paniccia, and Axel Alonso. So a lot of folks editing this thing. So I'm not expecting to see any sort of errors here. Uh, I'm joking, of course. Uh, cover price, $4.99, and this one went on sale on my birthday, December 27th, 2017. I turned 38 years old on that day. So let's get right on into it here. We open in a familiar neighborhood to folks who know the Gray family. We're in Annandale-on-Hudson in upstate New York. Now here we see a boy and girl riding their bikes, arguing about something silly, a dude dressed in bird feathers or something. They happen across a body of a young girl hovering just above the ground with what appears to be, uh, you know, blood pouring out of her head. It's like a puddle of blood under her head. Now, obviously, these kids can't believe what they're seeing, which, you know, I have to say to them, you just wait, because it's going to get a little bit weirder. Now, it turns out that the bleeding girl is... Zatanna? Hmm, well, okay, probably not, but uh, she speaks backwards nonetheless. The bleeding girl stands up and says, We were better off dead. But it was more like, dad, uff, retab, eru, ew. You know, backwards. Uh, the two freaked out kids and the bloody girl are then joined by another young girl. And this one has long red hair. Then the bleeding girl disappears, and the redhead is holding what appears to be a dead bird. The redhead then tosses the bird into the sky where it comes back to life and flies away. Now, the kids. They're even more freaked out at this point, and they start running away, to which the red-haired girl shouts to them to wait and to watch out. We jump ahead a few hours later, and the X-Men Gold team has arrived on the scene. They include Not-Yet-Call-Me-Kate Pride, Storm Colossus, Nightcrawler Prestige, and Old Man Logan. Now, the local law enforcement doesn't know why the X-Men would show up to their sleepy little hamlet and tell the mutants that 
they pretty much have everything under control. Kitty explains here that their Cerebro unit pinged like crazy to direct them here. Off to the side, Rachel, Prestige, her nose begins to bleed. Kurt asks what's up, to which she recalls that she once had family who lived right in this very area. And I want to say that the Grey family were wiped out in an issue from Claremont's third go-round on Uncanny. I think it was one, if I'm remembering this right, I know that he utilized this gimmick, but I don't know if it was exactly this issue. It was like a real-time gimmick. Like, the entire issue had a clock running through it to show us how fast it happened. It was like 24 seconds or something, or 24 minutes. Maybe it was a play off the 24 TV show. I don't know. But I seem to remember this having a clock ticking through it so you could see just how quickly everything went down. Anyway, Storm inquires about the two children who were involved in the situation, and the officer's like, oh, you want to see them? They're right over there. The young boy and girl are hovering just above the ground with what appears to be very, very bloody head injuries. From here, we get a double-page spread of credits, so maybe this phenomenon isn't new to the Hawks, Pox, Docs era. Maybe this is something that Marvel's been doing for a long time, and I just never noticed it because I was never, you know, writing scripts about these books, so I kind of just went right past it. So we resume with comics at the Xavier Institute for Mutant Education and Outreach. You ever notice the longer these names get, like, the less they feel like they actually mean? Now, if I'm not mistaken, and I very well might be, I think this might be when the X-Men were hanging out in Central Park. Though, in fairness, that really doesn't matter for the moment. Now, Kitty's holding a meeting to let the collective X-teams know about the weirdness going on upstate. And uh, this really isn't the greatest group shot. Um, I feel like Lionel, you might have given up halfway through this panel. It's just not the greatest group shot. Now, Kitty opens this meeting by saying that, uh, well, she doesn't have the foggiest idea what's going on and can't explain what she and the gold team saw up in Annandale on Hudson. And so she introduced Beast to try to make sense of it all. Here, we learn that despite looking as though they were bleeding profusely from the head, neither of those two children from earlier had suffered any wounds. Also, they were not the cause of the cerebro ping because neither child tested positive for the X gene. So whatever it was that Cerebro found, it's a, a new type of reading. Sabretooth then pipes in to inquire why this is such a big deal. It's just a couple of floating kids, right? Which, I mean, in the greater scheme of things in the Marvel Universe, yeah, it doesn't sound like all that big a deal, does it? Now, Kitty then reveals that whatever it was that caused this also wound up putting Rachel in the infirmary. So it's definitely some sort of juju that they're going to have to deal with. Now, Beast continues to talk and talk and talk, claiming that he created a new energy profile search for Cerebro, which combines solar radiation with psychothermal tracking. Old Man Logan thankfully says, get to the point already. And so Kitty says that this new profile has led them to three disparate locations on the globe, because of course it did. It's like the annual JLA-JSA team-ups from the uh, Bronze Age up in here. Now, the first location is the old Hellfire Club in Midtown Manhattan. The second is the Mont Francis, the Mont St. Francis Monastery in southern France. The third is the North Pole. I'm not sure if it's the magnetic north or just plain north, and I'm also not sure that that would actually matter. And so, Kitty assembles three teams to investigate each of these locations, and thankfully, these scenes will actually play out in this very book, rather than spinning off into several issues of Blue Gold and Weapon X. Magic then chimes in and asks for some clarification. You know, she wants the layman's take. Kitty and Beast have said a whole lot here, but what in the world does any of it actually mean? 
Kitty cops to it. She says, I don't know. So we're just going to try our best. So let's split up. Let's split up our teams here. First stop is the Hellfire Club, and our team includes Kitty, Jubilee, Storm, Magic, Colossus, and Nightcrawler. Next, Mont St. Francis, and our lineup here is Young Beast, Young Cyclops, Young Iceman, Young Angel, and, well, regular old Rogue. Finally, the North Pole, and I want to say that this is uh, the Weapon X team. I dropped out way before they launched the uh, new volume of Weapon X, but I think this is the team from that. Uh, it's Old Man Logan, X-23, Warpath, Sabretooth, Psylocke, and Domino. Which Psylocke? Search me, I haven't the foggiest, and I doubt it'll matter either way. I don't think she's going to be getting too much of a part in this. We jump back to Kitty's team as they enter the Hellfire Club, and it doesn't seem like anyone's there. The place just seems long abandoned, you know. Uh, though Magic claims she can feel a presence, Nightcrawler then looks off panel and says, Uh-oh, we got company. But first, we jump to the Blue and Rogue team. They wander around the monastery for a bit before Rogue is attacked by everybody's favorite acolyte, or at least in the top three of acolytes, Seamus Mellencamp. Next stop, the North Pole. Our Weapon X team is trudging through the snow when they appear to see a figure in the distance. As they get closer, they begin to be able to make it out, and it looks like it's Wolverine. Like, young man Logan Wolverine, that is, who isn't scheduled to get his own return of miniseries for like another year at this point. Back to the Hellfire Club. Our gold team is being attacked by a bunch of Hellfire goons. You know, those, those guys in the, in the masks. You know them. They're the ones from uh, the Hellfire Club. Jubilee takes a big old bite out of one of them, because you remember, she's a friggin' vampire. She notes that these baddies ain't even human. And so, Kitty's figures that they could just ignore the kill-no-man law that won't be passed for another year and a half and just go hog-wild here, knocking these guys out. Next stop, France, where this is going to be a very frenetic <laughs> little jumping of scenes here. Uh, France, Rogue, is trying to fight off Seamus Kuga Mellencamp while keeping the all-news away, since this bad guy can steal your life force with but a touch, which is kind of her gimmick. Now, Rogue is briefly taken out, and so young Scott blasts the baddie with his optic beams. Back to the North Pole, this weird Wolverine is approaching the team, and so Domino shoots him right between the eyes. Which she shrugs off, he's perfectly fine with it. Then young man Logan absolutely starts wiping the floor with the Weapon X team. Back to Hellfire, and I am getting dizzy here. The gold team keeps fighting the hordes upon hordes of Hellfire goons when they realize that the door to the place has disappeared. Thankfully, Colossus happens to have a master key in that he can, you know, just smash through walls and stuff. Back to France, Seamus is able to nimbly dodge the tactics of the all-news and very briefly gets his gross, lizard-like hands wrapped around Hank's neck. Rogue recovers and punches Mellencamp through a nearby wall, ending the fight. Back to the North Pole, young Wolverine has taken out the entire Weapon X team and is down to he versus old man Logan. Back to the Hellfire Club, the gold team is shocked that all the goons have vanished. In France, the blue and rogue team is shocked that Seamus has vanished. And, duh, in the North Pole, Weapon X is bamboozled when young man Logan vanishes. Then all three teams look toward the sky. There's something strange going on, and whatever it is, it doesn't look good. From here, we jump to elsewhere, and we're standing outside a small roadside diner where a waitress named Gladys is seeing some of that same strangeness above. She calls over to her co-worker to come outside and get a gander at what's going on in the sky. And her co-worker just happens to be a young redhead named Jean. 
She says she's never seen anything quite like this. What this is, well, we don't quite know yet. Just as quick as it happens, it's over, and the waitresses head back inside the diner. Gladys starts telling a woman inside what they saw. Says it looked like a giant bird inside the sun. One of their regular patrons, Annie, doesn't believe her, and assumes that she'd just been getting into the rum raisin ice cream a bit too much. And so Gladys prompts Jean to back up her story. But she doesn't. Instead, Jean says that it was probably just a weird formation of clouds or something. Jean then goes to take the order of another patron, a Mr. Cassidy, who uh, we probably all recognize. And uh, this also prompted me to do a little bit of thinking about this Annie character, and, uh, yep, there's definitely one of those in Jean Grey's backstory as well. Later that evening, we follow Jean home. She passes a church that has Revelations 6-8 posted on a billboard in front of it, which uh, isn't exactly the most pleasant thing to see. Anywho, she gets home, and she's greeted by the tweeting of her pet bird, who she feeds what's either a cracker or a small pouch of chewing tobacco, I can't tell which. She's then met by her parents, and she tells them that she isn't really feeling all that well right now. In fact, she's so out of it, she'd like to skip dinner. Her folks are like, oh ho ho, you have a dinner date. And no sooner do they do so, than there's a ringing at the doorbell. And we wrap up with Jean answering the front doorbell, and we see a young fella with ruby quartz shades and a dozen roses waiting for her. Okay, so let's talk about this issue. Um, I really dug this. I really, really enjoyed this. I, you know, I can't lie, I kind of expected to enjoy it, so it's not like this was a huge surprise or anything, but this was really, really fun. Um, had a really good time with this. It's probably... The best take I've seen on the characters of this era of the X-Books. And, I mean, if you've been following along with this channel and the entire X-Lapsed pro project here, you'll know that this is the era that drove me away, right? The blue and gold, and I couldn't stand it, so I ran. And here I am, actually, almost like halfway motivated and inspired to give it another chance. Uh, it's too bad that Rosenberg wasn't writing either the blue or gold books, but... Maybe we'll revisit those down the line regardless. Now, when this was announced, like, that this series itself was going to be a thing, I was a little bit dubious, but at the same time, very, very, very curious. I wanted to know how they'd managed to bring the real Gene back, right? But I couldn't shake some gimmicky doubts. Though then again, it is worth noting that this was during Marvel Legacy, where for a hot minute the company seemed interested in embracing and celebrating their vast history. So I guess the time was right. Um, I guess I was just still feeling the burn of the blue and gold at that point to be completely objective. Uh, but I was, and still am, curious to see how they're going to pull this off. It's kind of a shame that I just couldn't get... I couldn't get past myself and give this one the, the shot it deserved back uh, when it came out uh, the first time, because... I swear it might have been just the thing to get me back into the uh, the X fold, you know, before Hox Pox Docs, right? Uh, this was this was quite this was quite good, quite good. Um, I feel like when you dedicate an entire event miniseries to something like this, you kind of have to knock it out of the park, right? Uh, this isn't just an arc between the various X books of the day, thankfully. It's instead its own thing, which will ultimately bear fruit in the rest of the X books. So, you know, I, I gotta say, expectations for this are sort of kind of high with this one here. And, uh, hey, if it's not clear, so far so good. 
I'm really, really digging this. Uh, the mystery they're building here is a lot of fun to follow. And, you know, while the three-team MacGuffin hunt, the old Justice League Justice Society annual team-up gimmick, was maybe a little bit contrived, at least it led to some interesting scenes that I'd like to know more about. And that is, of course, assuming that they weren't quite as random as they appeared to be. And I'm guessing they're not random, of course. There is got to be a reason for all three of these locations. I mean, the Hellfire Club, pretty self-explanatory for longtime X-Fans. It's pretty much where Dark Phoenix came to be, right? The, the whole corruption of Gene with uh, Jason Wingard and all that stuff led right into the uh, Dark Phoenix saga. So definitely stands to reason that that's going to be a, uh, a point of interest. The North Pole uh, played into either, you know, they, they did those post-Morrison miniseries. I think, I think Greg Pak wrote them and Greg Land either drew them or did the covers for them. They were like Phoenix End Song, Phoenix War Song, Phoenix something or another. There might have just been the two of them, but uh, the North Pole played into one of those back probably 15 years ago, so... Stands to reason that that would be a point of interest as well. The monastery in France, though, that one I'm not so sure about. Um, I know that it came up in Uncanny X-Men number 300, and it was touched upon during the Phalanx Covenant, but I really couldn't say how it might relate to Gene or the Phoenix. Uh, I'm guessing it'll come back around to it, and I'm, I'm guessing it'll probably make sense, so I'm looking forward to seeing how that, uh, how that plays out. Let's talk a little bit about our various X teams here, because um, two of these were the reason why I stopped reading these books. Um, the Blue and Gold, I did not like it. I did not appreciate that run. It was a run where, you know, I, I it's hard to really put into words. I know I've tried before, and I'm probably I probably failed many times before, but it was like the characters look familiar, but. Once they start talking and behaving, it's like, I don't know who any of them are. Um, the blue team especially. I feel like the blue team was perhaps the weakest. And it's actually one that I thought I was giving an unfair shake to. And I probably was. But I've gone back to X-Men Gold... I'm sorry, X-Men Blue, number one, about two or three times. And uh, that first issue where the young X-Men fight uh, Black Tom and the Juggernaut... It's not very good. Um, and it's not that the action's bad. It's not that the art's bad. It's the dialogue. The dialogue is like if if we had a machine that measured sass and snark <laughs> and faux teen speak, um, it would break if you if you set that book on it. Really, really poorly done. I just did not like any of the characters. I couldn't root for the characters. I thought they were portrayed really, really... Petulantly and annoyingly Did not care for it The only part of that issue that I actually enjoyed Was like the last two pages of it That introduced uh, uh, Ultimate X into the uh, Marvel Universe I thought that was pretty cool Just because I'm a, I'm a huge lore guy I like everything being on the table And this was an instance of that Here the young X-Men were uh, They were treated pretty well I think I think they were portrayed very well They were, they, they still were a little bit snarky toward one another But it felt it felt a lot less try-hard. You know, I think, like, we had we had Bobby telling Warren that when he walked, it looked like a bird walking across a puddle or something, and that's that's kind of cute. You know, that's not, you know, 2020 talk. You know, <laughs> that was just fun goofing, you know. Uh, the gold team here was pretty cool. I didn't have a problem with the gold team back in the day, and I still don't. I think it's a good team to put together. 
having Kitty in charge is really cool. It doesn't feel forced or anything. It just feels like the next logical step. And I, I like the way that this played out. The Weapon X team, I, like I said, I never read the Weapon X volume that spun out at this time, but it was pretty cool. I liked it. Um, I still don't know how Sabretooth is exactly on the team, and I have looked at a few of the covers of Weapon X, and I see that, like, Lady Deathstrike might be a part of it, but I'm not totally sure how that plays out, or even if I'm if I'm reading it right, or just looking at the pictures right. So I'm interested in seeing how Sabretooth wound up with the good guys, so maybe... Somewhere down the line, I'll have to dig those issues out of uh, whatever back issue bin I might stumble across them in. Um, let's go to uh, Jean the Waitress. Uh, that gave me some very uh, opening ten minutes of a Twilight Zone episode vibes. I, I thought it was really cool. Um, having Annie What's-Her-Face and Banshee in the diner was interesting as well, and I'm wondering how this will all pay off. I wonder, is this diner even a real place? I'm guessing not. Since, you know, from there we followed Jean home and found out she had a date with an also quite dead Cyclops. Uh, makes me wonder, are we in whatever the hell the White Hot Room is? Because I, I, I still don't know what the White Hot Room is. I read the Morrison run a bunch of times and I still don't quite understand it. And, you know, I probably haven't even thought of the White Hot Room in like a decade. So, whatever it is, <laughs> maybe we'll find out here. Whatever the case, though... I loved this. I'm in for the ride. I can't wait to to be no longer Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed. I, I, I'm looking forward to checking this series off our list here and, uh, and getting to the bottom of it. It was great fun, and uh, I'm actually enjoying these, uh, these takes on the characters that made me run for the hills a couple of years earlier, you know? And as mentioned, it's even making me want to maybe give the color books a bit of a retry. And that speaks entirely to the talents of Mr. Rosenberg, doesn't it? Now, let's briefly touch on the art a little bit before we jam out of here. I didn't love it. I didn't love it. Um, it's odd. Before starting these X-Lapsed family of shows, I think I would have considered myself a pretty big fan of Lionel Yu's work. Now, I feel like I'm finding out I'm not. And I mean, it's good. It's good. Don't get me wrong. It's good stuff. It's just not what I'm looking for in a comic book. You know, I can't say it's bad. It's just... I don't know. I just don't like it quite as much as uh, as I might another take on it. Overall, now if you skipped this series like I did, I guess shame on us. And I'd say with cautious optimism that you might want to check this one out. I'm not entirely sure how to read Marvel's site, but if I am reading it right... Uh, Phoenix Resurrection is available on Unlimited as of this recording. So if you've got that, you'll get this. And I'd say so far it's worth your time if you're an X-Fan, lapsed or otherwise. And that is where we'll leave it today. Really, really looking forward to continuing with this series. Uh, now, if anyone has any memories or comments or concerns or whatever about this uh, episode, this issue, this series, these characters, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm pretty easy to find. You can get me at Ace Comics on Twitter or at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes and blog posts over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. The entire X-Lapsed family of episodes are available at xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up about X-Men comics or whatever the hell you want over at 90s X-Men on Twitter. Oh, I'm sorry, on Facebook. Yeah, 90s X-Men on Facebook. 
And you can hear the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Thousands of hours for your listening pleasure if, you're, uh, if you've got thousands of hours to spare and you can deal with my voice for as long as you've listened to it now. think that'll do it for us. Huge thank you to everyone for sharing your time with me and uh, going on this all-new, all-different voyage into Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed. Uh, So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh